good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good? Good, yeah? It is really nice to be with you here. Um, for those who haven't met me or don't know me, haven't heard me speak before, I should make the standard Kate Middleton joke at the beginning of the talk because it's just good to get it out of the way, especially with the Platinum Jubilee coming up. Uh, I am at a church based in Hertfordshire. We have a fundraiser coming up fairly soon and there is a fairly strong suggestion from my team of wardens that we, we do the publicity on the basis of Kate Middleton as an after-dinner speaker which they keep saying is actually not a lie, but I think I would be quite a huge disappointment to the people who've paid hundreds of pounds for tickets if they do that. Anyway, so I am not that Kate Middleton. I am classically known as the other Kate Middleton, which is nice. So I'm a psychologist. I'm also a church leader, and I'm one of the directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation. So if you haven't come across us before, you can see the uh, website is up on the screen if I'm not stood directly in front of it. And we are a national organization and we are passionate about encouraging the church to engage in this whole area of mental and emotional health and well-being and and what to us that means is really important because it's much more than just what do you do when you get ill it isn't just understanding illness really well although that's important talking about it more breaking down stereotypes and and supporting people equipping churches to support those who are struggling that that is important but there's a bigger message that we're really passionate about which is what does it mean to do life well how do you flourish and and truly thrive particularly in a season that is tough so how is it possible not just to survive but but to thrive when actually life's been really rubbish for a couple of years? What do you do when your trajectory of what you thought life was going to be like just isn't the way that it goes when you hit something that you didn't expect, when you start to struggle or encounter something that's really difficult? So we're interested in supporting people and talking about how we manage some of that in life and how you deal with and understand things like our emotions, things like stress, the sort of stuff that can lead to illness if we aren't supported well, if we don't understand those things well. And that, to me in particular, is something that I'm really passionate about at the moment because it's so good. We as Mind and Soul, we've been working for a couple of decades in this field. 20 years ago, our main work was just getting the church to talk about mental health at all because it just wasn't talked about. You came to a conference or if you went away to one of the big summer events, you'd be lucky to find a seminar that talked about mental health at all. So we spent the first 10 years campaigning for that and just trying to talk to people about this topic. Well, now, of course, wonderfully, that really has changed. And particularly coming out of pandemic, we are having so many conversations about mental health and well-being. In fact, to the degree that my daughter, who is 17, if I talk about mental health, she will go, oh, because she is so fed up of people wanting to talk to her about her mental health and well-being. We talk about it a lot. But what we now have a really vital responsibility to do, particularly as people of God, as people of the church, as people holding a hope and a light in dark times that perhaps won't be found anywhere else, we have this really important responsibility to talk, to shape that conversation, to talk not just about illness, 
which, especially in the rising generations, our young people and our young adults hear a lot about, but to talk about how do you hold life well? What does real life look like? What does real faith look like when you encounter the struggles that life so often throws at you? How do you get through stuff so that you don't just hit problems, struggle, and then label yourself as ill and then feel trapped there without any real hope? What does it look like to do life alongside difficult emotions, difficult experiences, and maybe to come out of the other side of those things? So that's something we're really passionate about. And it's particularly something that underlies this topic that we're going to talk about today. Because the question that's on the screen is the one that I had asked to me so much this year. So much, particularly at the beginning of the year, as we sort of plowed our way through this continuing mess of pandemic. And then as we sort of just came out of that, we were just starting to feel like we were getting our feet back on solid ground. And then we hit war. And we hit the challenges and questions around that. Do, come on in, grab seats. Don't worry, everyone. And, and you know, I've got, I've got a 10-year-old and a 17-year-old, and, and, and we've just come out of him saying, like, what is it next, mum? Zombies, then. And Sonny's like, oh, I know what's next. It's World War Three, And I'm like, yay, this is great. No, it's not great. And just thinking, how, how, is this, how is this the world that we're encountering? When will it get better? When will life start to settle down? And, you know, so many of us are processing some of those difficult questions as we've come out of everything that we've been through. But also, these things are part of life, loss, trauma, tough times. How do we journey through those things as people so that we are not just accepting and holding and talking about the bad things, the difficult things that they produce, but like I say, so that we're talking and thinking and supporting people to come through them well. So that's what we're, we're going to talk about today. And so these really are those moments in life where you, you hit something that, that's just those moments where everything in your mind just, just sort of rebels against what's happened. Like, no, this cannot be happening. And sometimes those are the, the shock moments, the, the tragedy, the phone call in the middle of the night, the sudden accident, the, the moment of violence, something that you never saw coming. I bet, like, like me, many of you remember those, those moments, even as we went into the pandemic, where, where suddenly it was all announced that we were going into lockdown. I remember sitting watching my son eating his last breakfast, his breakfast for the last day of school, thinking, I can't send my kid to school. That's really weird. And just thinking, this, no, this can't be happening. What does this even mean? It's those moments in life where everything has suddenly changed. And, and what I want to do is, as we talk and journey through what it means to, to get through these moments of loss and difficulty and trauma, I, I want to look at the journey of some people in the Bible who went through a moment of incredible trauma and loss and change. And it is, of course, a story that we've just journeyed through as we've celebrated the Easter story. Because Jesus' disciples, his friends, the people he did life with, hit this moment where something unthinkable happened. Even though they sort of knew something was coming, Jesus had spoken to them about it. Sometimes it doesn't help that you knew something difficult was coming that moment of, of loss or grief, it's still a trauma, it's still a challenge, it's still something that you have to work through. 
So we're going to look at three key moments in their story as we journey through. And, and I'm also going to talk through the three key moments in all human stories as we get through loss and trauma and help us think, therefore, about how to do that practically really well. So drawing together that, that biblical divine wisdom alongside what we know from psychology and neuroscience and, and all the other disciplines that can help us in this. But perhaps a good place to start is to think about why some things are traumatic. And, and the pandemic's an interesting example of that alongside people talking about it as, as a kind of collective trauma. And sometimes we can feel a bit like, well, is that a bit snowflake, really? Suddenly everything's trauma, isn't it? My, my daughter's all like, oh, mum, trigger warning on that. You might traumatise me. I'm like, mate, I told you to tidy your room. That's not a big trauma. <laughs> you know... We, we sort of think, gosh, we're suddenly labelling everything trauma. Is this really trauma? Are we making a bit of fuss? Why is this traumatic? And actually, sometimes the hardest thing coming out of something that's been traumatic is understanding why. Why has this thrown me so much? Why has this hit me so hard? Why am I reacting to this when everybody else I know seems to not be bothered? Because some big experiences... The difficulty is, is that as individuals, they hit us in different ways. And sometimes one person, a few people may find that something that's happened has really been difficult, whereas for other people, they sort of sail through it. And, and again, the pandemic was a good example of that. There were some people who, who still talk about it like it was a really wonderful time. Someone said to me the other day, like, oh, yes, I'm really feeling nostalgic for those moments of 2020 when I sat in my garden for, for three months and, and drank cocktails. And I'm thinking, I am so going to slap you in a minute. I don't feel nostalgic about that at all. In fact, that was not my experience of lockdown. I've never worked so hard. It's never been so difficult. Our, our experiences and our journeys through a moment are different. And I think what we need to understand is that sometimes life throws you off balance. Something hits you and suddenly things that felt very stable can suddenly feel quite flimsy, quite risky. Your concept of what the world is, how you understand yourself in relation to the world, how you understand the other things that are really important to you, like, like can you protect and keep safe the people that you love, your ability to control things. Sometimes something happens and it shakes those things and and you did feel like you had your balance but suddenly everything just feels really wobbly it feels like the world is spinning I talk about emotional vertigo anybody who's ever had physical vertigo knows how awful that is when just everything won't stay still but sometimes something happens and, and emotionally you and your brain are literally reeling you're trying to figure out what does this mean and that is what we mean psychologically when we talk about trauma it's it's not something necessarily about the, the magnitude or the violence or the suddenness of an event it's about the impact psychologically that it has on everything that makes your world feel stable. So you can think about your sort of psychological stability. Always fun to talk about how stable you're feeling. I don't know how stable anyone else is feeling today. Let's not go into that. Anyway, your psychological stability, it's a bit like a, a Jenga tower. That there are some 
factors in your life that are absolutely foundational to how stable you feel. They really, really matter. And it's different for all of us. So, so for me, I've still got quite young kids. My ability to look after my kids and keep them safe, that is absolutely solidly important to me. Other people, you'll have different experiences. It may be something about your own identity, something about your world, the, the vital key anchor people in your world. We all have things as part of our, of our sort of foundations that are really, really important. You know what it's like when you play Jenga? Some things you can play with a bit. You can pull them out. You can put them on top of the tower. You can change those things. But other things, you, put, you pull that out and then it feels like there's a risk the whole thing might fall down. So we have to recognize some of those classic core foundations, some of the basic beliefs. Some of these are universal. In psychology, that there's so much written about some of these universal beliefs that we like to hold about the world. Like, like we like to believe that the world is basically just and fair. Good things happen to good people. Nothing bad will happen to you if you're basically a good person. We're all adults in this room. We kind of know awkwardly that that's not true, but we still sort of live quite a lot of life, la, 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 trying to pretend that that is true because it's, it's, it's psychologically easier. Young children absolutely do believe that because it's part of their sort of naive psychological protection. They, they believe that basically the world is a nice, fair place. And it's difficult when that is challenged. Things about your own identity. Do, do you believe that you are basically a good person? Some, some people struggle with that anyway because life hasn't given them a fair appreciation of themselves. And, and that's a sort of long-term challenge. But sometimes things happen which challenge our understanding of ourselves as, as basically decent, basically capable. You know, you do something just really stupid. Has anybody just done, ever done something really stupid that, that's had a bad outcome? You know, you make a mistake and it causes an accident or somebody else gets hurt as a result. Those things are really challenging to us because they, not just because of the rubbishness of that event, but because it questions something that we like to believe about ourselves. We rely on things that we think are stable, people we think are stable, jobs often that we think are stable, home circumstances that we think are stable, financial stability, oh my goodness, that's been rocked recently. I don't know if anybody like us, we, we just had the letter from our gas company that is a very, very amusing joke, I hope. But, but you think that your financial stability is something you can basically depend on for, uh, for a lot of people. Some people, like I say, have longer term challenges with these things. But if that's something that you've sort of built your security on and it's suddenly challenged, it, it throws you. Things suddenly feel wobbly. So we need to understand sometimes to think, why has this hit me so hard? Are there key foundations that it's questioned or challenged? Are there things I need to understand about why I'm finding this difficult? The other important background thing that we need to recognize is, is how our minds deal with information, with stuff that life has thrown at us. And, and I'm, I'm sort of gonna simplify this, so if there's any like neuroscientists in the room, apologies for that. But you can sort of think of your brain as having two key storage spaces for the stuff that has happened to you. 
And and one of those is is a bit like the bookshelf that that, that for the whole of pandemic, if I was talking to you uh, via the little green dot on my laptop, would be right behind me in the image. I have a bookshelf in my office right behind me. It's for the current books because I have quite a few books, probably a few too many if you ask my husband. They're the ones that I'm like, I might need to get out now. They're current. They're, they're, they're not the ones that I bought like 30 years ago and forgot I even had and can't remember why I wanted to read them. They're like the current things. So your brain has this short-term store for stuff that is going on now. Maybe there's still some things you might need to, to understand, to delve into, to think about, to ponder, to process. These things are not finished yet. They're ongoing. But you also have a long-term store. It's a bit like the loft in my house. That's where my husband packs up all the books when he's trying to make space for all the new ones that I've just bought. So these are the ones, that, 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 that the place where your brain puts the stuff that is now over and finished with. It's there. You can dredge those things up if you need to, but they're not at the front of your mind. They're not... They're not sort of popping up or bubbling to the front of your consciousness all the time because they're past, they're dealt with, they're put away. And the process of, of moving information from that short-term to the long-term store is, is a very important one. You can't just take something awkward that happened and just think, I don't want to think about that, I'm just going to throw it in the long term. In order to do that, your brain needs to feel that, that you've understood it, that you've processed it, that, that everything important that you needed to learn from that or that impacts you, that, that you've managed to take what you need to from it. So if it's question a basic foundation, what does that mean for the future? Does it change the way you need to live? Should you have done something different? Is there a conclusion or something you need to understand from that? Is it saying something to you? All of those sorts of questions have to be answered. And the way that your brain keeps information in that short-term memory store, and even more than that, keeps it at the front of your mind, is by using emotions, awkwardly. The job of particularly negative emotions is to focus your attention on something that's important. So it might be something important now. It might be that you suddenly remember that you've forgotten to do something really vital and you'll feel that stab of anxiety as your brain just draws your attention to it. But also it might be something in the background which, which is ongoing, which your brain's like, hey, you actually do need to think about this. And what's awkward is sometimes we don't really want to think about it because these, if it's loss and grief and trauma, those things are difficult and painful. And maybe we don't have the answers. Maybe it feels like there are no answers. So what can happen is we end up fighting with our brains because your brain is trying to bring it to the surface. You're trying to push it back down. And you want it to go away. But to do that, you have to go through a process which is difficult. So we need to recognise the natural process that's going on here. If we want to get through something and past it and beyond it, what we have to do is not fight that process, but work out how to support it and how to do it well and how to do it safely. Sometimes people, particularly if they've hit something really difficult and traumatic, they are overwhelmed by that challenge. The level of emotion something's producing, the level of trauma and fear and panic. 
And, and as it's extreme, that expresses itself in PTSD, when people are experiencing those moments when their mind reminds them of something so powerfully that, that it's like being dropped back into the present moment when that incident happened for the first time and they're experiencing flashbacks. And, and, and the power and the difficulty of that often means that people find themselves caught and they cannot move on and get through this journey. So trauma isn't just an in-the-moment challenge. It is about how you get through something, and it does take time. So let's think about the three basic stages that we all go through on that journey. And, and we're going to take them one at a time and just sort of have a think about what that looks like, how we can support that for ourselves and for other people. But before we do that... Let's, let's pause for a moment on the story of one of Jesus' disciples. One of my favourites, if you're allowed a favourite disciple. You probably aren't. But this is Peter. I love Peter because he kind of reminds me a little bit of my son. He speaks first and then thinks about it quite a lot later. My son the other day got into quite a lot of trouble. He said, Mum, I, 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 I shouldn't have said that, should I? I'm like, no, not really. He's like, oh, yeah, OK. I think Peter's a bit like that. But Peter's this amazing guy, if we think about his story and his journey alongside Jesus. This is Matthew 16, when Jesus says to the disciples, and he's starting to try and prepare them for this moment of trauma that's coming, he says, who do you say I am? And it's Peter, of all of them, who grasps actually something theologically pretty amazing he says you are the messiah the son of the living god that that that's a pretty impressive comment from peter he had flashes of brilliance and jesus responds to him with this amazing prophetic statement about peter he says blessed are you because he's simon then for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. It doesn't really work in English, in, in the Greek language, and also, interesting in French, I used to live in France. It works much better because the, the word for the name Peter is the, very similar to the word for the name stone. So it's a more direct and obvious link. But he says, you are Peter, and on this rock or on this stone, I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Wow. You think, oh, he's got to be feeling like, yeah, that was good. That was a good comment. I'm glad I said that. Of course, what he does next is say something else because I think he's just a bit like, oh, yeah. Just leave this to me, guys. I'll handle this. And then he gets it completely wrong. And he gets the whole get behind me, Satan, which I think is a good moment of humility for him, just in case he was getting a bit carried away. But that is a powerful message that, that Peter's holding, his expectation of who he, who he is, who he might be, something significant about him. There's, a, there's something about calling there. Many of us will be leaders in this room who will have struggled with questions of calling and things that God is speaking in the midst of circumstances that don't feel very tidy or easy to understand. And, and this is what is going to happen to Peter. If we move on then to, this is Matthew 26, just as we're moving into the, the, the sort of passion story just before Jesus is eventually arrested. And, and Jesus is telling them that this is about to happen. He says, this very night, you will all fall away. You will all be scattered. And we see this beautiful expression in Peter of everything that he wanted to be. He says, 
no way. Even if everyone else falls away, I never will. He's like, even if the rest of them run off, I never will. Beautiful expression of the person, Peter's understanding of his own identity. This is the person that he thought he was. And then, of course, what we know later is that actually, unfortunately, it, it doesn't fit. His expectation and reality are quite a big clash because in the moment what happens, he, he actually does really well, Peter, at first. Everybody else does run, but he, he follows at like a safe distance to, to where Jesus is being questioned. He hangs around. He's trying to be there and to stay. But people keep saying, like, aren't, aren't you one of them? Aren't you? I saw you with him. And of course, he denies him three times. And there's this terrible, poignant moment when he hears the rooster crow and he remembers Jesus basically warning him, saying, you think this is who you are, but this is actually what's going to happen. And Matthew tells us that he went outside, he, he left and he wept bitterly. You know, he absolutely sobbed. He was devastated by the reality of who he turned out to be in that moment of trauma. So this is the first thing to recognize. In the moment when trauma happens and the early days behind, the first stage that we hit is shock. And, and sometimes what we need to recognize in our own responses and reactions is that we are massively influenced by the fact that we are reeling from that shock. In shock, when something has happened and it feels like your whole world has shifted or been shaken, your brain instinctively gets you to seek out safety and calm, to withdraw, to retreat, to find all the people who really matter to you, to get everything under control again. It's like a basic instinct to protect yourself when the worst has happened. This is Peter. Everything in him wants to be able to keep going and follow Jesus and be courageous. But people keep outing him. They keep saying, aren't you sure it was you? It was you. And his brain eventually just cannot take it anymore. Everything in his mind is saying, get out, find somewhere safe, get away. And so he denies, he denies, he denies. In those moments of shock, your brain is effectively on a sort of emergency mode. It's a bit like uh, we're not apparently having any fire alarms today, but if we did, I'm sure that this building would have that emergency setting, you know, where all the lights go out except the really important ones so that you can find your way out and everything. It's a bit like that for your mind. Your brain sort of shuts down a lot of the things that are peripheral or in that emergency not so important, and it focuses on reserving all its resources for the most most essential things. The stress level is really, really high. So one thing that happens is that your ability to think clearly and process and, and articulate and do all of that complex cognitive processing drops right down. It is not the time to do lots of careful analysis. Your brain just wants you to simplify everything, to think about the stark necessities of this situation. So what happens is that the, the, the world starts to feel like a very binary place. Your brain simplifies how it sees everything. So things are either good or bad. You are either right or wrong. Someone is either for you or against you. And the problem is those simplifications are not accurate. Most of life is lived in the gray between the black and the white. But in those moments of shock and trauma, or by the way, just any high stress or high emotion. So if 
you know, you're just absolutely furious or really anxious, the same thing happens. You, you sort of feel that, that haze in your mind. You can't think clearly. It feels like that's reality. So if you're not for me, I'm sorry, but you are completely against me. Why is everybody against me? You feel like you fail at everything because if you're not 100% brilliant, then you must be failing. If, if, if something difficult happens, it starts to feel like everything in the world is just bad and difficult and doomed. And so in those moments of shock and trauma, it can feel much more overwhelming than it really is. And that's partly what draws you to have that strong instinct to withdraw, to get away, because it just feels too much. It feels impossible. It feels really difficult. Meanwhile, the way you experience your emotions does change. On the whole, people talk about feeling numb. They don't really feel anything. And that can be quite disconcerting. But again, it's part of your brain's way of helping you just to do the essential stuff and not be affected by the emotional enormity of what's just happened. It's normal in that emergency mode shock phase. So what we need to recognise in that shock phase is that this is not you at your normal functioning capacity. This is you in an extreme emergency scenario. We need to understand why we're thinking and feeling differently. We also need to recognise that it affects people in different ways. So if something dramatic has happened but it hasn't particularly threatened you or anyone you love, some people actually really thrive off this emergency mode. The, the adrenaline high, the excitement. We all knew some of those people going into lockdown, didn't we? Come on, be honest. They probably drove you slightly crazy. They were so excited. They were buzzing. They were arranging new ways of doing things. They, they were just on a bit of an energy high through the whole thing. Because this, this sort of drive and the novelty of it and the clarity of focus, if it's not been traumatic for you, can actually feel like quite a positive thing. Let's just think about three challenges then around this first phase of shock. The, the first one is, is something very important called microaggressions. Now, microaggressions are, are, are little things that remind you of a much bigger thing. And, and they can be things that just happen relentlessly, just like little reminders of something really rubbish that's happened to you or that you're dealing with right now. They can come out of the blue when you least expect it. But the key thing is, is that what they have the power to do is to push you back into shock as though that first incident had happened again. And we have to understand this because sometimes when we're in this quite vulnerable space where something big has happened and we're still really reeling from it, we can be pushed back into that acute shock quite easily. So I, I've got the dreaded LFT picture. We, we've kind of gone off these. They've sort of gone away now, haven't they, a little bit, which, which I'm, I'm not sure if that's better or worse. I'm, we're still using them quite a lot in our house. But um, <clears throat> that, that moment when you thought it was all over and it was all fine and then suddenly you get two blasted lines on one of these things. I spoke to so many people who were like, why, why am I overreacting to this? Like, why have I just sobbed for like an hour? Because actually it's not that bad and I, I really don't feel that ill. Why? Because it's reminding you of a bigger trauma. Why, when someone says something little and snarky to you that's a bit racist or a bit sexist or just idiotic, why do you, people say, why have I let this upset me so much? No, it's not that you've let it upset you. It's that there is a bigger thing here that is really rubbish and wrong and upsetting. We need to understand that. 
As, I don't know if anybody's ever done that thing. Church is a great context for this. That there's there's that person who there's a, there's a tricky issue with, and and you're you're walking around the supermarket and you see them. Uh, how many people, let's be honest, have hidden from people in the supermarket? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a church leader. I do it all the time. Oh no, I'm just. Like, not now. Why? Because all you have to do is smile. Morning. Yeah, it's all right. Fine. Why? Because it's a bigger thing that's actually really difficult. And your brain makes the link even if you don't want to. <clears throat> so recognize the challenge of microaggressions. Number two in this phase is that, oh, gosh, we love the whole talky-talky thing now, don't we? Oh, you need to talk about that. It's very important to talk. You should get some therapy. We, we love to do that really, really quickly. But... There is a very important psychological safety and security in this early shock phase that says that you probably don't need to talk. And in fact, even if you tried, it would be very, very difficult because your brain's not there yet. You can't think clearly. You're still... What you need in the shock phase is security, safety, quiet, people to look after you. You don't need someone banging on about how you've got to go and see a therapist. And so people mean well, but we need to hold this with wisdom and we need to hold this sensitively and recognise that people are different. This phase of, of being in shock and reeling can go on a long time for some people. I, I'm still doing pastoral visits with people, particularly those who are clinically vulnerable, who are still in shock phase for what happened in March 2022. 2020, so two years on, they're still reeling. They're still in this phase that they cannot believe that this has happened. They cannot process it. We, we have to understand that and, and not try and push people on before they're ready to move. We need to support them. So number three is that we need to recognise it takes time to get to a space where that shock starts to settle. Go easy on yourself if that's you. Go easy on other people if you're supporting them. The language that Matthew uses in Matthew 26 that says that Peter left when he realised what he'd done, actually, it's, it's a very powerful word and it signifies that he didn't just physically leave. Peter emotionally counted himself out at that moment. He thought because of what had happened and how he'd reacted to it, that it was game over. He was out of this. I wonder if he thought back to that thing about the rock that I will build my church and just thought, I have blown it. I have failed. Remember that binary thinking? It is all over. <clears throat> this is a disaster. It is the end. It's all done. And he, he leaves. He sobs, not just because of the enormity of what's happened in that moment, but because he thinks that it means that everything is lost. Give yourself time when you're shocked. It is not as bad as it feels in those early moments. And when your brain settles and you get out of that emotional vertigo, you will start to get some clarity back. You will find a way through, although you might need some help. And remember, compassion is absolutely number one in this phase, supporting people, caring for them, being kind to them, taking pressure off where we possibly can, just giving them time and space for things to settle. So that's stage one. Stage two then, which we're probably more aware of and a little bit more comfortable with, is when we get to a point of being ready to start to process, to, to try and understand what has happened, to find a way through, to, to, to work our way back to something that can feel good again. 
this is a challenging stage, but, but when you get into it, often it feels a lot better because at least things are moving. There's something you can do. You feel much more in control, less frightened, less like you're being pushed back, sort of hiding in a corner. But one of the awkward things about the journey through loss, through trauma, through grief, is that it isn't a straight line. So you don't just do stage one, right, I've done that, I've hidden for a few days, I've cried more than I possibly thought I could cry, and now, hallelujah, I'm out of it, <clears throat> let's move on. We have to recognise that when we are in this stage two, that it's quite normal to have seasons, days, moments when we get pushed back into that stage one. A microaggression, something that happens, something that remi reminds you of a bigger picture, something that reminds you of a question you don't know the answer to yet and suddenly it just feels overwhelming again. That is normal. It isn't a sign you're never going to get through this. It's just how your brain copes with it and it's tough. You know, you've, you've had two or three days of thinking, I can actually do this. I can cope with the loss of this person or the, the change in my circumstances. And then just suddenly you have one of those days where it just feels awful and, and overwhelming and like you're drowning in it all. That, that's normal. And hope, hopefully in coming days you'll, get, you'll have more of feeling better again. But again, we need to be there with compassion for ourselves and for other people in those moments when things are difficult. This is a particularly challenging phase in a long-term season of difficulty. We like trauma to be tidy. Psychologically, we like most things to be tidy, to be honest. But so something happens, it's rubbish, but then we can get, we have a moment of being shot, but then we get over it, we work through it, and then it's all over and we can move on. It rarely works that tidily. And when something continues to be difficult for a long time, just because it is a bit rubbish, financial circumstances that are difficult over a sustained period of time, loss of a job, and then actually you, you don't get a new one. There isn't a really obvious God's bigger plan in this for you. Actually, it's just a season of applying for things and then getting nowhere. Those drawn out difficulties... Again, <clears throat> one of the things that was so hard about the pandemic was just it kept flipping coming, didn't it? Remember those lovely days when we just used to talk about lockdown and then it was like lockdown one, two, three. Everyone loves a trilogy, but everyone knows that the third is always rubbish. And, and it was hard because it just kept happening. The urge to process over time just grows and grows and grows because your brain is like, hello, this is really big. But you're still partly in that. I've just got to keep my head down and get on with it. Many people, particularly if you were in frontline positions, if your situation was particularly challenging or demanding, spent like two years in emergency mode. Like head down, don't think, don't feel, just, just keep going. And, and that's really tough. There are lots of challenges about that, the demand that it places on you. It's like a, a universal long-term rise in your stress level. And the problem then is that when your baseline level is already really high, little things feel like big things. Your bandwidth to cope with the challenges of life, it's just rubbish. So you start to find, oh, as time goes on, often things just become more and more difficult. You get more and more tired. Emotionally, you're tired. So dealing with things is difficult. But also, cognitively, you get tired. One of the things that I talked about a lot in pandemics, you might have heard me talk about this before, but psychologists were sort of oddly fascinated by it in that slightly geeky, annoying way. It's annoying according to my children. Um, 
was cognitive fatigue. So cognitive fatigue is something that we see normally in like veterans of long-term conflicts or extreme high stress, like long-term hospital stays, things like that. But through the pandemic, we started to see it in, in lots and lots and lots of people. <clears throat> even in ourselves, which was oddly fascinating. And cognitive fatigue is just when your brain is really fried. And so it starts to try and conserve energy. Just normal functions don't work as well as they normally do. Any of you who found that your memory just started to be utterly shocking, so it might still be a little bit, just that's okay, don't worry. That things like tip of your tongue syndrome, which is that thing where you're trying to think of a word and you just can't think of it. I, can, I cannot tell you how much I yelled at my husband the day he couldn't tell me correctly the word aubergine. I just couldn't think of this and I needed to put some on my shopping order. And I was like, you know that purple thing, it's like a courgette, but then he's just like, well, he's my husband, so he's like onion. I'm like, no, not an onion, that's not even close. But I couldn't think of it, it was so annoying. Tip of your tongue syndrome was was charted as as the rise in it. Look, people all over the place saying, "Is this some kind of terrifying early onset dementia?" No, it's just cognitive fatigue. It's also not your husband just being useless. Your attention, your ability to focus is absolutely shot. I got to the point in um, in the pandemic where I was setting my a little clock by my desk for. 20 minute cycles and, and sort of bribing my own brain like focus on this for 20 minutes and you can have a cup of tea because I just I couldn't sit, couldn't settle to anything because my brain was so tired and we need to be aware that these are real things this is not just you being an idiot I remember my daughter getting really upset because she forgot something um, at the beginning of this academic year. And, and, and this is the challenge to your understanding of your identity. Like she's used to it, actually, she's like super terrifyingly capable. So to her, to suddenly be this person who had really badly forgotten something that she shouldn't have forgotten and literally just not turned up, she, she, was, she was absolutely devastated. Like, what does this mean about me? How did I do this? How did this happen? Cognitive fatigue. We've all had to get used to ourselves not being at our best. And in that journey through loss and trauma, that can happen. Memory and grief can be affected so badly that people often do worry, like, is there now something wrong with me? But it can be part of that normal transition, the normal journey of processing. <coughs> So again, we need to be compassionate about ourselves and recognize the global impact of this. One of the things that's really difficult as our fatigue increases is that our ability to control and hold all that emotion also starts to drop. So when you're in that shock phase, your emotions are automatically suppressed, but over time that, that becomes harder and harder to sustain. It's like trying to keep a beach ball under the water. It's easy at first, but after a while, as your attention gets dragged to other places, too often it just pops up somewhere where you least expect it. And it, particularly in long-term trauma, where you're dealing with so much that's so rubbish that you can't solve, it can end up feeling like you're playing emotional whack-a-mole. You know, you're just trying to get on with life and up pops one and there's nothing you can do with it. You can't process it because it's still going on. So bang, it down it goes. And then up pops the next. It's exhausting. 
Also, people get very reactive in their space because their bandwidth is so low and they're already dealing with so much emotion. So conflict can become another problem. So many people encountered marriage difficulties in the midst of lockdown and pandemic. And that's not just because you've suddenly been wedged into the same space. Hey, my husband normally commutes to London. I was like, what do you mean you're going to be at home all the time? This was interesting. It's not just that, it's because when you're exhausted, when you're struggling with things that are difficult, when you're emotionally reeling, you have very little bandwidth and tolerance for anything else. So we need to be aware of that. <clears throat> How do we get out of it then? How do we process? Let's, let's just pause on another really interesting human story that we read in the Gospels, this is Luke 26, of course, talking about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, this is interesting because Emmaus was away from Jerusalem. It was probably where they came from originally, and they had gone to be with Jesus to do the journey of, of um, doing ministry with Jesus. And now, after this shock, after this trauma, they were going back. This tells us they were probably still in that shock phase, like, I, I'm going, I'm going back to the last place I knew that was safe. But we can tell that they're starting to try and process because we read that they were talking about everything that had happened. Their, their brains just bringing it up to the surface. It's at the front of their minds. What was this? What happened? What does this mean for us? What do we do next? As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. And of course, they're kept at first from recognizing him. And there's this wonderful description of what happens in that moment because Jesus says, our, our translations make it sound a little bit harsh. He sort of says, you know, why are you being so stupid? Basically, like, why have you not understood this? Literally what the Greek means, the most literal translation is, why, have, why are the cogs of your head not turning? Basically, he means, why are you not thinking this through? What you're basically saying, you're, you're out of shock now. What you need to do is start to get your thinking brain working on this. And, and they, they have this conversation where Jesus sort of walks them through the understanding process. And there's this beautiful word that's used that, that refers to a conversation that bounces back and forth. And, and I absolutely love this because it's so accurate to describe what we need to do for processing. So often people think that what we need to do to process something awful and difficult that's happened is have the magic idea. You know those Christian paperbacks where somebody's dealing with something and the very wise, mature leader has just says the sentence and, and they usually break down and then there's a prayer and then it's all, it's all solved and over. It's good, isn't it? I don't think I've ever had any of those moments in my life of ministry, in my like 25 years of Christian ministry. It's always felt a lot more complicated than that. Because actually processing is bouncing thoughts back and forth. It's a bit like marinating a stew. <clears throat> what you need to do is give people's minds the time that they need to dwell, to ponder, to process, to understand. So as these guys walk, Jesus takes them through a journey where they do that. They bounce thoughts back and forth. So we can think about processing really as a bit like playing thought tennis. It's not about delivering the winning shot. It's about keeping the rally going, keeping conversation going, keeping the thoughts bouncing back and forth. So think about how you can play. There's basically three ways you can play tennis. 
the, the first is on your own. I know some of you are like, no, Kate, you can't play tennis on your own. Don't be daft. No, you can, uh, because, well, actually, it wasn't tennis. It was with a football. But my son did this for quite a lot of lockdown. It felt like always at the time I was trying to study or do a live broadcast, he was kicking his football against what is unfortunately the wall of my study. So I would just hear, doof, doof, do Anyway, so you can play on your own. What's, what's the cognitive equivalent of that? It's creating space for your own thoughts to bounce back and forth. So that might just be about space and time. It might just be going for long walks, creating time where you're not under so much demand that you're in that emergency zone and you can't process anything. Maybe taking time out, going on retreat, or, or just grabbing a moment with a cup of tea, sitting on the back step just for five minutes, creating those spaces. It might be about trying to think about how you could do that processing yourself, listening to podcasts, reading, um, prayer, meditation, writing things down. Sometimes pushing a thought through a different part of your brain helps you process. So speaking it out or writing it down actually can really help take the thoughts that are sort of flitting around in your head like a buzzy fly and, and help bring them to some kind of order and clarity. So you can do it on your own. But of course, we know that the best ways to play tennis involve someone else. And we are not generally created to do things on our own. So finding spaces where other people help us in this journey of processing, that's really valuable. And, and one of the best ways of doing that that we often overlook is, of course, the most fun way to play tennis, which is just to have a knockabout. Doesn't matter, there's no pressure, there's no intensity, no one's keeping score, there's no umpire in a big high chair. It's just about relaxed, fun time with people who understand you, they know you, they love you, they get you. And those conversations are so powerful in processing. So when you are going through something difficult and you go for coffee with someone and the next thing you know, you've been chatting for like two and a half hours and you feel really guilty. There was so much you should have done with that time. Don't. You probably just did the most important thing with that time. When someone goes for coffee with you and you know they're going through a tough time, remember this. Your job isn't to try and say something really clever or, <clears throat> or solve their situation you know, have you thought about doing this? Oh, that's not helpful a lot of the time when you're just like, great, thanks, you know, no, that's the last thing I needed was more suggestions for things that I failed to do well. Actually, your job is just to keep the conversation going, to bounce the thoughts back. That sounds really difficult. What did you do then? What does that make you feel? What are the thoughts in your head around that? Just help them to think it through, to process it. Try to dial down the intensity where you can. You know, these processing conversations, they, they can be sort of intense, sat opposite each other, but so often they happen when we're going for a long walk with a friend or having a barbecue together, so it's a relaxed context. Because when the intensity and the pressure is off and we're dropped out of that emergency zone, often it's easier to, to think and process. Some of those most valuable golden moments actually happen in the times that feel least significant because we are the most relaxed. So think about that. And then, of course, the third way to play tennis is that sometimes we do need a coach. Sometimes the things that we've been through, the emotions that we're dealing with, the symptoms that it's triggering, the enormity of the questions that it's raising in our minds, we need someone who's skilled, who knows how to help us to do this well, who can hold all of those things safely for us. 
Sometimes we need the safe boundary of stepping out of our life into a therapeutic room or space, opening some things up, and then at the end of the session, closing the door on them and going back. In an ongoing <clears throat> trauma or challenge, sometimes we have to create those spaces because actually it's still rubbish and it's still difficult, but we also need to try and process. Otherwise, we will be drowned by the enormity of what we're facing. So if you're going through something that's long-term, finding those spaces can be so, so valuable. We need to think about the importance of safety in processing. Just like in that shock phase, you need to think about safe spaces to deal with the emotional load. Those two disciples, when they're talking with Jesus, they, they talk a lot of theology, but, but we also see them sharing some of the difficult emotion. They say to him, we had hoped that he would be the one. We, we had hoped, we had dreams, we're so disappointed, we're so gutted, we're so devastated by this. We have to find some safe spaces to be able to unpack those emotions. And, and a, a little aside on emotions, particularly in loss and grief. May, maybe you've heard models that say that there are, I can never remember how many, there's supposed to be like seven stages or whatever, you know, denial, anger, whatever it is. The, the, the truth is there are lots of different emotional stages that you go through as you journey through loss and grief or any trauma. But the order is unpredictable. They definitely don't happen one at a time. The way that they hit you is unexpected. They often come in, in things that, in moments or at times when you least expect them. And some of them are a shock. So anxiety, when your stress level is high and your whole world is reeling, a lot of people find that they suddenly become just very generally anxious. It's like your brain is like, if this happened, anything could happen. So it's on constant high alert all the time. And little things suddenly feel overwhelming in terms of the anxiety they provoke. That's normal. It's really tough, but it's normal. Holding that without panic is important and understanding and compassion. Anger as you deal with so much change. Anger if you've lost someone at that person. This is normal, it's common, but again, it's difficult to deal with sometimes. <clears throat> that numbness of being in shock, and oh, why aren't you crying? Well, I don't really feel like, should I feel like crying? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe I didn't even love this person. What's wrong with me? Everybody else is crying. Numbness can be really hard, but it's, it's, a, it's a very defensive part of how your brain deals with things at certain stages through the journey. And again, it clicks in and out. Often people find when they've had a moment of unpacking and processing, it can be followed by a period of suddenly feeling numb, exhausted, blank. And that can feel quite alarming. But again, it's normal. Your brain's just trying to recover from having done the unpacking that it's just done. And of course, happiness, laughter. You're dealing with something massive, something awful. Somebody's died, some massive loss, and then you, something happens and you laugh and, and you feel dreadful. Like, how, how shallow am I laughing at that? Well, no, we need to recognise emotions aren't binary. Life isn't either hard or easy. We're not either sad or happy. These things can coexist. And actually, in a loss and grief and trauma journey, those little moments of laughter, of fun, the smiles, the little good things, they get you through. So don't feel bad if, if your job for somebody in their journey seems to be that you're the person who takes them out and they don't talk about it. You talk about all kinds of other nonsense instead. Maybe your role in that person's journey is to give them just a moment of relief, a little moment when the, the sun comes out, just for an hour. 
So we need to recognise that that's okay and also that it's really important. Those, those moments are like stepping stones across a river that has suddenly become a deluge. You know, when you're in the midst of something that's frightening, that's overwhelming, that feels like it might drown you, you need to know where is your next stepping stone? Where's your next moment of stability and calm? Your next opportunity to think and process. So think about where are those anchor spaces for you or the person you're supporting? Who are the anchor people who can do that? Not everybody can. One of the hardest things about hitting something really traumatic is that actually some people in your world will struggle to do that journey with you. It's not their fault. It doesn't mean the friendship is rubbish. It just means that people are different and some people will find that hard. But there will be people in your world who can do it. Find them. Book regular slots to hang out with them. Make them anchor people who can help you create those stepping stones through your journey. If you can make anything a regular pattern instead of just a, an impulse or, or chance thing, it will help you because it will help your mind know this is coming. In a rough moment, in a difficult day, you'll know, actually, I could talk about this with Santo when I see them for coffee because I do that every Thursday. Or I, I can do that when I meet with that person who prays with me because we do that all the time and it's going to be okay, therefore I have somewhere I can take that. So again, if you're supporting someone else, a little thing you can do that might help is instead of it being just, just a random thing that we sort of go for coffee from time to time, say, would it help if for a bit we do this regularly? Like, it feels like this Wednesday morning at nine is a really good slot for you. Why don't we just say that we'll do that every week unless you ever want to text me and say it's too much today. I, I can't do it, which is fine. But I'll be here and I'm available and, you know, let's do this. So think about the regularity. Okay, let's, let's finish with consolidation with the end of the journey. And this, of course, is where we're trying to get to. But it does take time. It's not this one-way growth process. It's ups and downs and backwards and good days and bad days. And people do that journey at different speeds. They do it in different ways. You have to trust your brain's timing on it. Try and surf the waves instead of trying to fight through them. And we need to recognize that as a result of all that difference, sometimes in everybody's different journey through the same trauma, they can become disconnected. Friends, relations, people you love, you can get thrown apart in a moment when you would most have hoped you'd be pulled together. And again, we need to hold that with compassion to try not to beat ourselves or the other person up about it. What we need to do is find those moments when we can actually start to reconnect and, and come back together with people we've been scattered from. Remember the disciples, Jesus was right. When the trauma hit them, they were scattered. But we see this lovely moment in the beginning of Acts where, where they've come back together. And it's really interesting because part of the process of that, if you think about it, is that Jesus appears to many of the different disciples in different ways. People need something different from him. Mary doesn't recognise him until he speaks to her. Poor old Thomas, who we 
always no doubting Thomas now. He, he has to literally see the physical evidence. He can't take it on a story from someone else. Some of the other disciples, he sits and has dinner with them. We're different in what we need to get through this journey. But in Acts 1, they have this kind of unified moment where they've been able to start to come back together. Those moments of reconnection, refinding each other are so important. And I think there's a lot of those that still need to happen now post-pandemic, if we're honest in our churches, in our communities, maybe even in our own families and friendship groups, refinding people who got lost and recognizing this isn't about judgment or right and wrong. It's just that we all went through something that was really tough. When there's a storm, sometimes ships are thrown apart by the waves. It doesn't mean they didn't want to be connected. It's just the way it goes. But let's finish with uh, Peter because we started with him, and I, I love this. We see this in Acts 1, a very different Peter. Remember the Peter after he's denied Jesus? He's sobbing, he's devastated, he thinks it is all over, he cannot see any path through this. In Acts 1, we see this very different Peter standing up, leading all the other believers, 120 people. He's confident, he's clear. What comes next, we can see that he's understood some of this stuff because he teaches them really clearly and beautifully. It's interesting, isn't it? Peter thought that what happened to him meant it was all over for him, but it was through his journey, through that trauma. It was because of what he learned in that, that he was able to find himself and release the potential that Jesus saw in him. Sometimes our most broken moments are actually moments of real beauty in a weird way. Because as we journey through them, as God supports us to get through the really gut-wrenchingly difficult stuff, we find things about ourselves that release a potential into the rest of our future. Trauma is by definition traumatic, but it doesn't just have to be about endings. As we journey through and process, it helps us start to put things back together and we can find unexpected new beginnings out of that. So let me just finish with this. This is um, Paul, another of my favourites, Paul, um, writing about his own journey through so much that was difficult and challenging. Paul was someone who had to question his entire identity so many times, who hit physical trauma, violence, all sort of sorts of challenge and unexpected things in his life. This is what he says, this is like his top tips, I think, for getting through trauma. He says, even in times of trouble, we can have a joyful confidence knowing that our pressures will develop in us patient endurance. And patience endurance will refine our character and proven character leads us back to hope. What he means there, the word that's translated as, as, as pressures that mean we have to endure, it means basically when stuff happens that we can't solve, we can't change, we can't get out of, so we just have to get on with it and find a way through it. He's talking about dealing with tough stuff and trauma. And something in doing that releases something in our character. We have to dig deep and we discover things about ourselves that we perhaps wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And what that does is it increases our ability to hold hope and light and we can do that for ourselves for the next challenge that life throws at us but also we can take that to the people and places that we go to it's a powerful thing the ability to hold hope and light particularly in a world that can be so full sometimes of darkness and despair so let's finish there let's recognize these are difficult journeys but we can see potential and possibility 
through them. Let me just grab a moment to pray as we finish. So Father God, I just want to recognize and hold in this moment that in this room, there will be many people who have been through difficulty and pain and, and moments of loss and trauma, that there will be many of us in this room still dealing with questions, with situations that just feel like they're not right, they're not the way we wanted them to be. Many people still struggling with that, just, no, I don't want this to be part of my story, his story, her story. I don't want this to be the way their life goes. We hold that difficulty in this moment, Lord, and we recognise it. We call it out and we say sometimes life is traumatic and difficult. That was never your wish or your dream for us. But we live in a broken world that throws some horrendous things at people through no fault of their own. Father, we thank you that in that your love is the anchor for us. That in life's storms we can fix our eyes on you. That you are the one secure thing. When all of our lives are shaken, we can trust in you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the relationships, for the people and places that have got us through. We thank you for the privilege of being people, places, spaces that can get others through. Lord God, make us wise. Make us compassionate to ourselves and to other people. But most of all, Father, I pray for that ability to carry hope. And in a world that so often feels so filled with despair, I just pray that each one of us in this room would be able to be like little candle holders of hope and light for ourselves in the tough moments, but also for the people in our communities, in our places of work, in our families, for those who need that. Thank you, Lord God, that we don't have to provide that ourselves, that we are just reaching out to a hope and a light that is bigger, that is better and be, is beyond ourselves. May that sustain us and carry us through. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, everybody. The Mind and Soul Foundation address is up there. I'm around for a bit, and I think we've got a bit.